Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Grove Church. Uh, we will be, uh, again, taking a little pause in the Gospel of John. I want us to continue to think and talk about uh, being a disciple of Jesus, not just on Sundays, but in every day and every place we go. Well, last week we talked a little bit more about discipleship and being a disciple. And specifically, we looked at what is a disciple. We took, took a look in Matthew chapter 4, and then we fast forward to Matthew chapter 28. And what we did is we just examined what Jesus did with disciples. Uh, how, how did he call a disciple? And ultimately, what did the disciple become by the end of the gospel of Matthew? What well, we actually saw just in review uh, in chapter 4, we saw that Jesus called the disciples and he called them to follow him and to make them fishers of men. So Jesus called his disciples to himself. He called them to follow him so that he would make them and he would, they would be fishers of men. So it's Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. It was going to be follow him, he'll make them fishers of men. So this is what Jesus sets up for his disciples at the beginning of his ministry. So we're going to be on the next couple slides more. There it is, right there. So Jesus has called them to follow him, that he'd make them fishers of men. So when we fast forward to Matthew chapter 28, we see the outcome of Jesus' ministry and him making these men to be disciples. We see this in Matthew chapter 28 and 16 through 20. Now, this is going to take place, again, this took place all after Jesus lived his perfect life in front of these men. He's died the death. He's raised again, right, died the death for our sins, raised again from the dead. And so these men are seeing him. And in chapter 28, verse 16, it tells us, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, this is important as we were talking about following Jesus, what does the outcome of following Jesus look like? Well, for these men, what did they do? They worshipped Jesus. So Matthew is explaining what a disciple looks like as they come to the end of chapter 28. A disciple worships Jesus. These men had come to the conclusion of who Jesus is, his real identity. That he's the son of God. He's, the, he's God come in flesh. Because for an Israelite to worship something, to worship someone, is to say that this is, person was deity. They worshiped him. They bowed down. This confession is who they believe Jesus is. And so we saw the first part of being a disciple is, the next slide, hopefully it's the next slide. Not quite. We'll go on the next slide. And one, there we go. See, someone didn't organize these slides well. It's fine. But they, we follow Jesus, right, and we, we, what's the outcome of following Jesus? Worshiping him. So a disciple is first and foremost someone who worships Jesus. It's what a disciple is. And the reality is, is that we, we talked about last week, and I won't go into all the details of last week, but what you worship, you submit your life to. What you worship changes you, right? It, it transforms you. you. You organize your life around what you worship. Give it more and more time. And so Jesus wants that in our lives. And we look back to Matthew chapter 28. You're going to have to go backwards now, Katie. 
because of how good I organize these. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So just as Jesus made them to be his disciples, he's now wants them to go and do likewise. He's given them all authority to go and make, make disciples. He wants them to do the same thing. Well, how, is he, how are they to make disciples? Well, it gives them three different verbs. The second verb um, is baptize. And this baptizing is very important. Because when Jesus sees a disciple, they are baptized in what? In whose name? In the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, it's here that they've been given a new identity. In baptism, we're given a new identity. It's a gospel identity. It's what baptism means, is when we take on a new name. Uh, from the father, we become a child, a child of God, a part of a family. And, and becoming, giving the name of the son, we become servants of the king. And Jesus came and he died the death we deserved, and he paid the price so we're set free. We're set free not to live our lives, but to live Jesus' life. We're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's the idea of being sent. Uh, someone who is sent is a missionary. And so as a disciple, we are sent in this new identity. Who we are and what we do comes from who God is and what he has done, to it, done for us. This is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not just someone who worships Jesus, but in giving this new identity, it will change you. It will transform you. You'll be given a whole new life. So a disciple is someone who's changed by Jesus. Oh, your slides are cracked. That is so good. This is all in review. So it, it, I, will go, I can go more in more detail here, but I, just to spare you uh, the review too much, you can always go back to last week's sermon. See, being a disciple is all about becoming more and more like Jesus. Being a disciple is becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the end goal. So we worship him. We're changed by him. And the last aspect of what a disciple is comes in verse 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have to remember that Jesus was calling these men to be fishers of men, right? And what were they at first? They were actually fishermen. So it's, it's kind of funny that Jesus transforms them and uses even their current occupation and helps them understand what he's going to call them into. But he's calling them to be fishers of men. And what are they to do? And Jesus is being very clear, right? We're going to worship him. We're going to be changed by him. But what are we actually going to do? We're going to teach all that Jesus commanded. So here we see the last part of being a disciple. So to be a fisherman, we're fishing for people to teach them what? To obey Jesus. Obeying Jesus is part of being a disciple. We obey who our Lord is, our master. So being a disciple is someone who worships Jesus, who, who's changed by Jesus, right? This is all about Jesus. And ultimately, who obeys Jesus. This is very important. Because as we talked about last week, 
And we talked about that being a disciple is one thing, and we understand maybe the, the characteristics, the, the qualities that are in a disciple. But then we often talk in church about the process. We talked about, talk about discipleship. And discipleship is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus as we become more and more of his disciples. And I love this uh, definition from Jeff Vanderstilt, so I'm going to rip it off from him, and I'm going to give him the quote. See, discipleship is leading others to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus. You see, the end goal of discipleship is becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, that takes submission. It's not a word we like to say in our culture, right? Like, no one wants to submit to anything. No one wants anybody to tell us what to do. And I'm the first one <laughs> to admit that. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. But in Christianity, in being a disciple, it's about obeying, submitting ourselves to Jesus. But it's just not some, some cold submission, right? It's just like, oh, well, I guess I just have to obey or I just have to give in. Th that, that is part of it. And sometimes, if I'm being truthful, being a disciple isn't always like being filled with warm fuzzies. Sometimes it is just it's being submissive to our Lord. But part of it is we're given this ability to submit. And it's from Christ Jesus' own empowering presence in our lives. This comes from the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk in the Spirit. And so a disciple, there's a many, many things that goes on in a disciple's life. But a disciple needs to have an environment, an ecosystem, if you will, to live. And so I want to talk about more about this because if we want to really submit all of life to Jesus, then it's going to take an ecosystem, not just an event, to do this. Because in the end, the goal of discipleship is complete submission. And I'll say this, I'm not going to get there in this life. <laughs> I'm just not. But it's what God is calling us to. And one day we will be just like Jesus when he comes back. So how are we going to, how are we going to work together to submit our life to the empowering presence and worship of Jesus? Well, I want us to open up to our text today, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, if there is one book of the Bible that I had to, if I had to pick, that would say like, this is what church is. This is, this is the theology, this is the doctrine, this is the thinking behind what church is. It would be the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is rich with imagery, rich with teaching and, and theology and thoughts about what the church is. I love the book of Ephesians. As we get to chapter 4, Paul's kind of given a lot of the, the framework for how the church is to, to be organized, to be formed, not, in the, like, not like leadership-wise, but how we're to come around, around the gospel, about our adoption. And now he's come to kind of the, 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 the part of what do we do as a community of people. And so chapter 4 is, is that. It's a kind of a, a treatise on what does it mean to be the people of God. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 starts off. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You ought to be walking worthy, okay, worthy. Uh, worthy to our standards? No, to God's standards. And so Paul is going to lay this out. What, these, what does this look like, right? And I wanted us to think about this. 
it's not going to be an ecosystem by ourselves. It's not going to be an ecosystem all by ourselves. He's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2 says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Uh, You cannot fulfill these things or have these things without one another. And that's clear with the last one, one another in love. But all four of these qualities cannot be ours individually. You can't be on an island and be full of humility. I mean, like, yeah, sure, you can be humble to yourself, but humility takes others. It's submitting yourself to others. Gentleness, you can be really kind to the coconuts, but there's something about being with other people and demonstrating gentleness. This is about the qualities we need with one another. Patience, if there's one thing being in community takes is patience. It takes patience with one another. And ultimately, bearing with one another in love. And here's how he ends verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See, if we're going to look at an ecosystem where discipleship will thrive, if we're going to look at the environments, then we're going to see there's three environments that we need in order to see discipleship thriving in the Grove Church. This, this idea of being in community with one another is really important. But it, there's a very specific idea here, I think that Paul's touching on, is that we need to be able to have lives that are visible to one another, right? Our, our lives need to be so visible that others can see these qualities in my life. Oftentimes we live our lives separate from one another. We're not accessible to one another. So the first environment that we're looking at in order that we might see our lives, oh, she already put it on there, there we go. See our lives more and more is life on life, life on life. It's where our life is visible and accessible to others. So people can see how we're walking and submitting our lives and increasingly submitting all of life to Jesus and his empowering presence. See, it's where others can watch our life and, and ultimately it's where we can watch theirs. Not in some like, I'm trying to trap you like the Pharisees and Jesus, but in a true sense of saying, like, we want to see each other, right? We want to see each one of us increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus. If we're going to do this, if we want to walk as a disciple, we need this ecosystem, and it starts with this one environment, life on life. That's a scary one for people because we don't exactly know how to do that in America But this is an important part of disciple-making, is that we actually know each other well enough to encourage each other and push each other towards Christ-likeness. And I think the reality is, is we're attempting, right? We're making a change in how we're even approaching church in this present season of ministry, not because we don't believe in Sunday morning, not because we don't believe in the preaching of God's word, but we do. But because we believe that that disciple-making has to happen life on life. And so I'd rather us not see, like, our expression of the church and discipleship as going to an event or being part of something for an hour a week. But something that encompasses more and more of our life. Because we're going to submit all of life to Jesus, then, then we need to be known in all of our life. This kind of thing doesn't happen when you just show up once a week or once every other week. It just can't. 
This first environment is important. It lays a foundation that life on life, if you want to have all of life submitted to Jesus, then we have to have each other in our lives. Well, let's continue to look at how Paul talks about the people of God and these environments in, Eph- in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Check it out. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you haven't figured it out, he's in all, like all, 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 right? One, one, one. I think it's interesting. Why, why do I stress that Ephesians is probably the best book about teaching about the body of Christ, the, the church? Well, maybe because the imagery of body, but it's about this oneness. It's about closeness, that they're being identified as one people. In fact, if we went back and I'm like nerd hat, because I just love the book of Ephesians, in chapter two, he talks about that through Christ's body, he's reconciled these two peoples, the Gentiles and Jews. That he's made one new person, one new person through them, through what Christ has done on the cross. Oneness is incredibly important. Unity is incredibly important to the people of God. Being in each other's lives. Let's continue to look at verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now he's going to talk about something. So that we've been given something. Uh, so there's this oneness, but Paul's also identifying there's an individual level here, right? That each one of us is, is uh, each one as of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he wants to tell us a little bit more of what is Christ's gift to us. Now he's going to quote a psalm and he's going to try to explain it. And you'll see in your Bibles there's going to be parentheses because Paul's kind of in like this parenthetical note of trying to help you understand how he's using this Old Testament verse. And so... I am going to talk about that. So just fair warning. Verse 8. He says, therefore, it says, and this is the psalm, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting this. Now he wants to explain it, but he doesn't want us to miss something. And he says this, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? What? Okay, well, real quick. Paul just saying, like, he's, Quoting that Jesus ascended, we know that Jesus ascended at Matthew chapter 28, right? Jesus went back to be with God. And what he's saying is that Jesus just wasn't hanging around earth from the creation of the world. He's just making a clarifying note that he who ascended also, he previously had descended, right? The lower regions of the earth was was basically what people saw as uh, the actual land of the earth. And so there are different interpretations, but that's the one I'm going to put forward. And that's the one I think is most reasonable what Paul's trying to say. He's, it's, it's logical to him, right? If he ascended, he, he came down. Now, verse 10. Continuing the parenthetical note, he's, Paul says, He, Jesus, who descended, is the one also who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's kind of unifying this, 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 this concept of, who Jesus is, that Jesus is not just some good guy, some good teacher, but he's reiterating that he who ascended and has given gifts is not just a good teacher, but he's the Messiah who is God himself, and he fills all things. He continues now in his conversation, 
verse 11. And these are famous verses, and you may be familiar. So what are Christ's gifts? So that was the parenthetical note. He comes back now to explain what were the gifts that Christ gave. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This oneness is so important and so vital that, that, that Jesus sends specific people with gifts, five gifts we, we, we examine. Sometimes time people call them offices. I don't know if I can go all the way to that, that thing because the, the Bible actually says they're gifts. But they, this is a distinction, right? It's a distinction from other gifts that the Spirit gives that we normally call spiritual gifts. And we'll talk about that another time. But these specific gifts, these, these five positions, if you will, are given to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's this work of ministry? Well, we're going to touch on more of what that ministry is. But, but Paul says right here, because he's talking about the unity of God's people, he's focusing on that. He says, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Uh, Danielle says, sometimes I uh, write run-on sentences. I think the Apostle Paul could be, could be blamed for the same thing. He just keeps going, right? Like, he is excited about this, okay? If you're not excited about this, then you're just, you're not like a nerd, and that's fine. But it's, it's, it's exciting for him because he's, he's talking about the purpose, the, the, what, what the church is about. We have these, these gifts that are given for the ministry that what might happen, that the body of Christ might be built up, that we might become full of unity, that we may attain, I love that, attain the unity of faith. So there's this idea that your faith is not just for you. It's not just me and Jesus, and I'm good. You're meant for more. Your faith is not just for you. This knowledge of the Son of God is not just for you. That maturity comes through unity, oneness. I think too often we read verse 14, this idea of being tossed to and fro, and we attempt to grow in our own knowledge of Jesus and of doctrine so that we may not be deceived, but this is meant to be in community. And see, this is what, I, I, I say all of this because I think it just continues to drive home, and Paul's making like very, very detailed arguments for why the second environment ought to be part of this ecosystem of discipleship. That, that we should have life in community, because that's the purpose of the church. That we are called to follow Jesus, to worship him, to be changed by him, right? To obey him, but not just for ourselves, but for one another. That life on life is how we are become visible and honest with ourselves and with those around us. But life in community is how we ought to live. How we ought to see ourselves as, as our maturity is dependent on the maturity of others around us. I think too often we have seen these gifts professionalized. And I don't want to talk bad about being a pastor because, you know, I'm up here. And, um, 
But, but this idea, we often have looked at like professionals to step in to do the work of ministry. But what is Paul saying? That these are gifts given that the body might do the ministry. And so these gifts are important. And often I think if you look at a pastors and your pastors, church leaders, they sometimes fulfill these gifts. And we won't get into the exact nature of each one of them. But it's important that we see that, that through one another, by being equipped, that we become a community that discipleship happens in. Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, that's epic. Not just one of us can attain this. We need all of us. We need one another for maturity. We need to be surrounded more and more with the empowering presence of Jesus in our lives. And this comes through community. I think oftentimes if we were to take an inventory of discipleship and we say, um, I, I, need, I need more discipleship in my life. Or maybe you've said that at one point in your life or you said, I need to be discipled. And what do we normally do when we say that? What do we do? And basically, for the, for the most part of my life, I used to say, well, you want to find someone that you want to be more like, right? And we often say, well, then discipleship is becoming more and more like that person. And, and maybe that's not completely wrong. Because Paul does encourage us, right, to, to basically become more like him as he becomes more like Jesus, which is great, which is important. You need models of what it looks like to live a godly life. But if I'm discipled by one person, who do I ultimately become more like? That one person. If I want to become more like Rick, there you go, Rick. I'm going to become more like Rick. But if I want to become more like Jesus, what do I need? Well, I need Jesus' body. I think that's why it's important that Paul is actually speaking here of Jesus' church, not just as a community, but his actual body of Christ. This idea of being built up together, right? This, in other parts, in Colossians, we're talking about being knitted together in love. That, that Peter actually talks about us, us being a spiritual house that's being built brick by brick do the bricks matter? Absolutely. Do the bricks matter in totality? Absolutely. They, they make the whole. See, the body of Christ, if we want to be discipled, then we need the whole body. We need all the parts working together. See, that's what Jesus' body is. It's many members. But we make one body. And many of those members have different gifts. Those, those members are of different gender, right? They're of different age groups, ethnicities. They, we need one another to grow up into all things, into Christ. We need the variety of the people around us to be the best disciple we can be. We need each other. We cannot fully be discipled into the likeness of Jesus by one individual person. They can do a pretty good job, but ultimately lack the totality of who Jesus is because of the whole body being together there's just one last environment that makes up this ecosystem of what it looks like to be in discipleship and be a disciple and what we need it to kind of thrive as a disciple but i believe it makes all of this possible i love ephesians 4 verse 15 through 16 it says rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head 
into Christ. Okay, so much, you might say, well, I think you're, you are, you seem to be overplaying that whole body image thing, right? Because like, not the body image thing, but the whole body analogy. Um, but you're, you're saying that, that we're the body of Christ, and I think that's a little too much because, because that's, it seems kind of like it's going to run its course. It's not going to, basically, an analogy ultimately falls apart. But here in chapter 4, verse 15, he doesn't stop with just saying that we're the body of Christ. But what does he say? Who is the head? Christ. And who are we becoming more and more like? Christ. And so that's why it's important that this, this idea of the body of Christ, having a head who is Christ, makes us being living in community, life in community, so important. Well, 16 continues. From whom... From whom, what? From the head, who is Christ. The whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. The body is growing because it's doing the ministry it's called to do. The ministry it was designed to do. It's built up in love. It's the third environment that makes up this ecosystem for discipleship, this, this idea of disciple-making. It's life on mission. Life on mission. It needs to be life on life. It needs to be life in community, but it needs to be life on mission. It's what we've been set to do. The best way for someone to become a disciple, to even to make other disciples, is to do it on mission, in community, but on mission. We need to be around one another doing this. Uh, there's something important that happens on a mission trip. So I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip. Maybe you've gone on a plane over uh, water to a mission trip, or maybe you've just gone across our southern border to do maybe build some houses or, or whatnot. Uh, but I, I've seen it no better than when I was on a plane with a group of people the first time I had gone on this mission trip, I, I was a newbie. I would never gone overseas. Uh, the second trip, I was leading, which is kind of crazy. But there's something that happens on a mission trip. And I saw this time and time with my friends and other people who go on mission trips. Uh, something changes in them when they go on a mission trip. And I think it's because of the environment that's happening on that mission trip. Uh, they're seeing a very clear purpose. And ultimately, on any mission trip, you know, you're getting tired <laughs> Your sleeping arrangements aren't not in your control. You don't get to eat what you want to eat. And you're having to get, basically submit more and more of your life to the purpose of what you're there for, to reach these people. Uh, and, and caveat, uh, you know, I do think short-term mission trips are great. They're important. But I'm not at all under the illusion that we're actually there primarily, uh, this sounds bad, to help the people that are there, right? Uh, ultimately, short-term mission trips are one, one of the greatest ways to see transformation in our, ourselves, but ultimately it, it lacks some of it. That's why if the Grove ever is supposed to do short-term mission trips, one, the people we're going to are going to ask us to come, right? That's really important. Uh, we're going to have a direct connection with the church there, and we want to go, and we want to ask them, what do you need? And they're going to tell us, we need teachers, or they're going to tell us, we need mechanics, or they're going to tell us, we just need people to come preach God's word. And at that point, guess what we'll do? We'll send the people who are equipped, right, to help that church grow. So anyways, that's a caveat. But a short-term mission trip is a great way to grow yourself, right? Like it is. And I'm not under any illusion that it's really any other purpose than that. Because many times I've gone, 
um, I've seen that. Like, I come back changed more than anything else we've done. You know, we've painted some stuff, and I'm, you kind of wonder, aren't there people in this country I went to that could do this painting? Yes, that's exactly right. But you're there to undergo some kind of change. But this idea of this environment of mission is so important. Because at some point you get to a time in the mission trip where the team is kind of at a moral low, right? Morale low, not moral. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Um, though we did go to Germany and had a beer, but that's, that was a different story. Um, uh, that was a different lifetime for me, uh, you know. Anyways, but this idea that there's morale gets low and you, you, you like are struggling with what you're doing. And at some point you come to the conclusion that you, you just need to surrender more. If you're going to accomplish the mission you're there for, to do the task you're there for, you just have to surrender more. And, and something happens with those people that you're on mission with. There's, there's a connection made. There, there's, there's real life happening. And I've seen this time and time again where people experience this on a mission trip, and they come back, and they look at the everyday life here, and they go, this is bland. They, they, they look at what they, they do, and often sometimes it's just they, they long for the ministry they were doing over there more than what they were doing here. I think that misses the point of what the mission trip was for. I think the mission trip should be showing you that, that life on mission is worth living. That life on mission is transformational. It challenges us. It gets us out of our comfort zone. It helps us better worship Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and ultimately obey Jesus. Life on mission is important in the life of a disciple. It really brings a focus what we're actually here to do. Vital environment for disciple making. I love how he says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You say, okay, well, I get what you were supposed to do over there. You're teaching English. You... You were doing a children's camp. You were painting buildings. You were building a home. I understood the mission. What is our mission? What is our ministry? And we say it time and time again, we're to make disciples. But what does this look like? Well, I think it's clear that this ministry is the ministry that was given to us from 2 Corinthians 5. So go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 5. You can look on the screen, verse 16. Well, go to 17. I'm going to start there. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new life. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, if there's any question, what, what does he mean by ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself on mission not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. We've been given this message. We've been given this ministry. And we are to be ambassadors for Christ right here and now. We need to go on mission and, and tell others of this great gospel that we've been given. That it's changed us. But I think too often when we viewed this mission before, we viewed it as individuals who are going out, who are commanded to, with marching orders to go out and to do this great ministry, right? And oftentimes we feel overwhelmed, we feel ill-equipped, and maybe the church has kind of doubled back on you and said, well, we've given the apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right, to train you up, 
to equip you to send you back out there as good soldiers. And, and uh, you know, Danielle and I have been watching uh, Downton Abbey, which uh, that's just a confession. I don't know why I'm saying that. But in it, they're in World War I, right? And they keep seeing these soldiers jump out, right, of their, their trenches and run across the field. And it's like suicide, right? Like, and it's just a crazy form of warfare, this trench warfare that happened in World War I. And these soldiers were just being just, just decimated, decimated on the battlefield. They couldn't get past uh, to the, get to the other trenches but without uh, being snipered or, or shot at or blown up with artillery rounds. I feel sometimes in the church, we're no better than, than that. We say, it's about being on mission, you're being the disciple, and we just like jump out of the trench and run. We're sending people out more like miss, uh, uh, mercenaries than missionaries. That we, we're, we sometimes view this something as you're equipped, so go out and do it. And that can lead to disillusionment, right? You, you come back just like, I don't even know what. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know enough. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know if I believe enough. And this can ultimately shake someone's faith. But we're really not sent as mercenaries. We're sent as missionaries. And if we look at the Apostle Paul in his life, we look at how, how did he model this, this mission work. What's very interesting, Paul's always with others, isn't he? He always has a band of people. He always seems to have a community he's going into, right? He's never just out on his own. And the times we find him on his own, it just doesn't seem like things are going well, right, in Paul. When he's in prison, but even sometimes in, his, in imprisonment, he actually has people there with him. Or begins to make more disciples so that he has a community, even in prison. See, we're not being asked to go out by ourselves, but we're asked to go out in community on mission. What does that mean, though? Does that mean that, therefore, well, if I'm not at a meal with other believers or uh, I'm not going to be with the body of Christ, then I just don't have to be on mission? Well, no, not exactly. Uh, hopefully this frees you up from the, the need of saying, like, I'm some hired gun to go out there and bring someone that is all on me. That somehow it's not God going before you. But it's also, we have to understand that God's sending us into everyday places. He's sending us on mission. So it means you're on mission by yourself for sure. But remember that you have support. You have a group. See, but I think that's all the reason more that the community... These, these gatherings, these small gatherings are so important to our mission. We do it together. We see our mission as every day. And we try to unite every day with the ministry that's happening through the body of Christ. So this is 